Hey, this is Dan Blewett, and welcome back to Dear Baseball Gods. This is episode 17, and this one is titled The Yips. So I just flew back in this morning, actually, from Boston. I was uh, out on the East Coast uh, speaking at Sabre Seminar, which was pretty cool. I was lucky to be one of the one of the baseball guys in attendance, um, sharing my insights on how to connect the uh, baseball guys, meaning players, coaches, you know, those old crotchety scouts who were kind of stuck in the past, and the front office slash analysts slash stats guys and gals. So there's, if you've ever been in a clubhouse, I just remember sitting in the locker room and, you know, the door would open, uh, you know, invariably sometime in, in pregame and, you know, in would walk a front office person or someone we'd never seen before. And you could just feel like the scowls towards them. Maybe not necessarily a scowl, but just like this, who is, who are they? Why are they in our space? Like this is, this is for players and, you know, it shouldn't be like that. We're all people and on a team like that, you know, everyone's pulling for the same goal. Everyone's reaching to help the team win and the things the the front office does supports the players and even more so in a major league clubhouse where there's tons of analysts and statisticians who are helping to get these players the information that they need so they can succeed, have great scouting reports, you know, they're helping to evaluate player contracts and and just all this amazing stuff. So um, there's a lot that's changing in baseball with spin rate data and stat cast data and all these advanced analytics and sabermetrics. Um, it's not going away. It's only going to get more and more prevalent. So for me, I wanted to kind of just talk about how we need to embrace that as players and coaches and, you know, open our arms to the sabermetrics. Um, and just to do that though, it just takes open lines of communication and, we have to trust each other and we have to use some strategies to, you know, allow for that trust to, to build. So ultimately it comes down to communication and I've been uh, reading lots about dealing with people and as my business grows and my academy grows and, and I interact with more folks and I want to make those interactions very positive. Um, you know, I'm just trying to get better at, at what I do and, and learn how to understand others and what makes them tick and how to get my message across and how to to hear them more clearly as well. So that was kind of what my talk was about. I'd hoped I'd get a chance to uh, to film it, to record it, but I didn't. Um, but that's okay. There'll be many more in the future. So it's a pretty awesome time. Um, one of the things I, I did struggle with was, was just understanding some of the presentations. So just in two days, um, I don't know, I'd say maybe like 35% of the, uh, of the presentations were just kind of inaccessible to me. You know, they're very, very academic. Um, some of them were really formula heavy and stats heavy and research heavy. And I just didn't have the, uh, I just kind of glossed over, started drooling, but, um, on the whole, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was, I met some awesome people, um, met some industry leaders and some great former players with great stories. And, um, you know, it, just really wide variety of knowledge and, and people and everyone was really friendly and receptive and it was cool. So felt very welcome and you know it's uh it's just one of those things where anytime you you get yourself in a new environment you have to to meet new people and network those things are always difficult um but man just what a inviting group it was it was really cool and boston is like one of my favorite cities now i got a pretty great tour um by by two of my buddies and man it's just like uh boston is just a city where 
for me, it felt like Chicago. It felt like New York. It felt like, um, felt like Baltimore at times. It was just, uh, it was kind of and like DC. It's kind of like an amalgamation of all those, those different cities. So it was really cool. Um, and one of the topics we were talking about as we wanted the city and, and bar hopped a little bit was the yips. And, um, my buddy Dave, he was explaining how he had the yips here and there. And, um, it was, a it's, it's been brought up a bunch recently because it's, it's kind of an unknown. And as I've been reading Tom Tango's book called the book, he's been discussing in one of the chapters how, um, clutch hitting doesn't really exist and how hitters tend to hit the same at the, and this is all based on major league data. They tend to hit the same no matter what the situation is. So high pressure, low pressure in the end, it all tends to, to average out. And, you know, that's an interesting thought. And really, I think that probably holds true at the major league level for the most part. Now, if anyone watched the, the World Series last year, you saw Carl Edwards Jr. get put in in the, uh, I don't know if it was like the, the 10th or 11th or 12th or whatever it is, the final inning. And he got the first two outs. And then it was clear that the gravity of the situation hit him. And he, he walked the next batter and he like couldn't get that final out. So you saw a little bit there. I mean, he's an exceptional pitcher and, a, you know, a young player still in the big leagues. But you could see it there. Um, but on the whole, I think players that have made it to the major leagues have pretty much figured out how to pitch under pressure and how to ignore and tune out the fans and how to ignore and tune out the implications. You know, they don't they're not presently aware that they're on TV all the time or if they are, they just they've gotten used to it. and They don't really care. You know, when I made my transition into pro baseball a long time ago, you know, I played in college against 100 fans or in front of 100 fans. You know, most of them were like parents and girlfriends and a couple of just random students who were probably lost and just needed a respite before they kept uh, heading back to the, the, the dorms, I guess. But, um, you know, and suddenly like my first start was in front of 4,000 people and I thought, oh my God, I'm going to freak out out there. Like, how am I going to do this? But it just immediately became pretty much the same as pitching in front of an empty an empty stadium so I guess you get used to it pretty quick and you know I think the, well the biggest crowd I've ever pitched against or in front of was I don't know like 7,500 or 8,000 people and it you know it's it's fun it adds an energy and like an electricity to the air and the atmosphere is great and you hear it when you give up a run you know the, the crowd goes nuts if you're on the road and um you hear that stuff between plays, but it really doesn't affect you in the mound. It's kind of surprising how quickly you adapt to it. But at the same time, you don't ever completely, it doesn't ever completely goes away, like the, the implications and all that stuff and the, the consequences of your actions when you're out there, especially when your job's on the line and, and all that. But, you know, we've all seen it. So when I was growing up, I was a Braves fan, and I watched Mark Wohler's, um, who was an accomplished closer for the Braves, get the yips and suddenly couldn't throw a strike, and that was the end of his career. So, I mean, the yips is kind of like loosely defined, and uh, I'll give a, a shout-out to my friend Mike Reinold. He has a, a theory. I don't know if it's a theory, but he feels that the yips is partly due to thoracic outlet syndrome, um, which is an in- interesting thought, and I don't have the uh, anatomical background to have much of a comment on that. But it's an interesting idea, but there's also a significant mental component to it as well, which is kind of what I'm going to chat about today. But, you know, the yips, in a sense, is just when you try to consciously control your actions that should otherwise be fluid. So swinging a bat, swinging a golf club, shooting a basketball, all those things, if you do them enough, they become second nature and you just do them. And they're nice, smooth movements and there's no space between thought 
and action. Now, when you insert thoughts between, well, I, I guess it's more like intention and action. When you insert a thought in there, like, hey, move your arm, then the movement becomes rigid, it becomes jerky, and it's no longer fluid, and it's no longer athletic and explosive and everything that it needs to be. So I've had a couple situations where I've had the yips, and I guess the most the most recent two were in the same season. Well, no, one was in 2014, one was in 2015. So in 2014, I was finishing up the season with Camden, and I was in Lancaster, PA. It was the last series of the year, and I was pitching a bunch. Uh, I don't know why exactly a couple guys were getting rested and it seemed like they were running out the clock on one pitcher who they didn't want to use because his era was really low i wasn't really sure what was happening um but regardless my era was in the fours and i knew i needed innings to get it down at this point we were at the playoff race so my only my only real goal was just to continue pitching well and um improve my numbers which improves your resume for the following year so i think i ended up throwing like six innings in the last six days or something like that and in one of them, I was facing this little slap, happy lefty who was a uh, he was a Japanese player, and he was a good little uh, first base or uh, leadoff hitter, and he was probably like five eight, you know, like one sixty, and he was a tough out in general, and he knew what he could do. He'd you know he kind of like be running out of the box and slap on the other way, or you know he'd yank one through the the uh, three four hole or. But he was a tough out. He was a good hitter. He had an interesting approach. You know, he would just foul off, foul off, foul off stuff all day. And so I was in a long fight with him. He was the, uh, I think, the leadoff batter of the inning. And it was like 10 pitches deep. I have him like one, two. He just keeps keeps nicking balls, nicking balls, nicking balls. I'm like, come on, just put put the ball in play. So finally I make a good pitch and jam him. And he hits this. This little roller between me, the first baseman, um, and the second baseman. But really, it's like maybe six or seven feet from the foul line on the first base side. And about 35 feet, I'd say, to first base. So I run over there. I'm running towards first. I pick it up, and he's booking down the line. And it, and I can uh, hear him coming up on me. And I grab the ball. And this is where you get screwed as a pitcher because you say, oh, how can you throw it with such precision towards the plate and yet not be able to throw it 25, 30 feet? So there's a just different zone. So for me, when I get a comebacker, I would take a crow hop and I would throw it hard to first base and I'd be fine. If I had anything on the third base side, I'd just pick it up, throw it as hard as I wanted to, I'd be fine. When I get close to the to first base where I could like underhand it or just like throw a dart, I was fine. But that inner, that little in-between ground where this is where this ball was. It was like, maybe, like I said, maybe 30, 30-ish feet from first base. When the hitter's really moving down the line, and you've got to run, a, you know, I had to run like 25 feet to get to it. So you get it, and you only have maybe 20 feet left where the runner gets to first. So you can't underhand it. You can't throw it too soft because he'll probably beat it. You can't throw it too hard because you're too close. And so basically what happens is you pick up the ball, and you immediately run all these calculations and all the consequences that I just talked about. Like, oh, God, I can't throw too hard. Can't throw too soft. He's running really fast. I'm really close. I don't know how, to hard, I don't know how, to, how hard I should throw this. And then I threw it in the stands. And I was so pissed at myself because I worked really hard through making, like, 12 good pitches to this guy. Get him. You know, I beat him. I get him to hit a 45-foot roller. I pick it up. I'm too far away to underhand it. 
too close to throw it hard, and I just, like, didn't know. And then he's moving, so when you see this guy, like, sprinting down the line, you immediately go into, like, throw it fast mode, but then you know you can't, and then just your brain just runs all these things, and it just, like, explodes all at once. And then I threw it 10 feet over the first baseman's head into the stands, and he got second base. And I was just he 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 ended up coming around to score, and uh, I mean it was an unearned run, but I I wanted to win. I wanted to get him out. It's not like I I was, was there's no solace in that it was an unearned run, but I was just so pissed at myself, and I'll never forget that moment because a I worked hard for that out, and b I just like it was like the most yippy moment of my life, you know, just like basically just convulsing as this ball just like flew out of my hand into the stands. But like that in a nutshell is why pitchers run the ball over the first when they get comebackers because if they if they they get that ball and they have time and they start to think about how hard they throw it to first they're going to screw it up they're going to get too many thoughts in between intention and action and that's going to be that and I think about this actually a lot more regularly than I should um because I play I you know I do pitching lessons all week and uh I'm constantly throwing the ball back to kids if distances between like 20 and 45 feet like tons and tons of 40 foot throws all day and that was like the weird in between hard throw that I had to make in in games that became yippee and I just think like man this was like the throw that I was looking for my whole career like every day I'm doing it and I like I think that like maybe once a month like how did I how was this this hard when I was playing that I couldn't make this 40 foot throw but here I am making him over and over and over throwing right in this kid's glove because yeah he's 35 40 feet away it's an easy throw it's no big deal, but for whatever reason, when you're in the in this, you know, the heat of battle, and you just threw a ball 92 miles per hour of the plate, now you're running over and you have to throw it 33 miles an hour. It's just, it's just really strange. But there's different types of yips. So you know, I saw teammates who couldn't play catch when fans were in the stands because they're afraid they're going to launch it over into the into the crowd of people and hurt somebody. Which, if they started thinking that, that was basically a self-fulfilling prophecy, and it was exactly what would happen. Um, I saw teammates who couldn't warm up on the field, uh, which is not what I just said. They couldn't warm up on bullpens that were on the field. So some bullpens are over the outfield fence. Sometimes they're um, on the field. And, you know, so you, if you throw it away, it goes right, rolls down towards the plate, and they stop play and all that stuff. And some guys get really yippy about that because they just get embarrassed and they get yelled at. Like, what, what you can't you can't hit your catcher? Like, come on. And that's, uh, I mean, that happens. You just kind of kind of put it out of your head. I mean, every guy throws a ball past the catcher at least once during the season. And, uh, I mean, it's sometimes a somewhat regular occurrence. But some guys get really, really in their head about that. You know, and imagine just like at Wrigley Field right there where, you know, they redid the bullpens now. But, you know, they're right there. Fans are right next to you. And, you know, you're aware of the fans on your shoulder and watching you. And just makes it uh makes it a little more difficult but some guys really struggle with that and then there's just uh I don't know it just gets really weird but the um you know I see this all the time and so when you're talking about major leaguers you know the data with them is different so sure clutch hitting maybe doesn't exist at the major league level because hitters are so good that they're and they're so consistent and that's one of the things that helps you get to and stay in the big leagues is consistency they're so good and so consistent that there's no room for the the pressure, for the consequences, for the situation to really affect their approach. Like they're gonna be the same in an eleven nothing ball game as they are in a, a two to one ball game. Now there's some exceptions. You know, I I pitched the eighth inning um, in my 2015 season, and 
I could tell that I got better at bats against me in the eighth inning because hitters knew, all right, it's two to one or it's three to one or it's one to one or it's one to nothing. Like we only need one run. I have to bear down. And they would have more focused at bats in those innings than they would in like the third inning where maybe they go up and they just like hack at the first pitch and, and pop up. They don't do that as much in the in the eighth and the ninth. So there's definitely something there where you could see some hitters focus better. But then again, we're not in the major league. So these are guys who just didn't have the ability or maybe they, they didn't make it to the majors precisely because they're the kind of guys who would, you know, not focus up in the in the third or fourth inning and pop up. And that was something my college coaches talked about all the time is having non-at-bats. You know, a non-at-bat is when you just go up there and you just basically just give yourself up because, you know, your approach is, is stupid. You know, you just go up there hacking on the first pitch or you just um, – you basically just get yourself out without having – without making the pitcher work whatsoever. And you see tons of these at the amateur level, these non-at-bats. And you don't see many of them at the at the pro level. You don't see many of them at the big league level. You know, you couldn't pick one out. I mean, you see them here and there, but, you know, in general, hitters don't give away at-bats. They, they look for their pitch. They take pitches that aren't their pitch, and they fight stuff off that gets them to their pitch, hopefully. So, you know, it's there's definitely a difference in focus, but I guess at the major league level, there's just, you know, those guys are the best of the best of the best, and the funnel's so narrow that, you know, it's it's kind of that trait is – selected for pretty much up there but at the youth level you see it a ton I mean and you see kids who are ball players and kids who are not ball players and if you just watch a couple of games it separates really really quick who's a ball player and who's not and a lot of that is like fight or flight you know kids who aren't ball players they they flee you put them in a, a situation they give two hits and a walk and suddenly there they are with the bases loaded and they know they're in trouble Kids who are ball players, they bear down. They they keep as much consistency as they can at their age, and they and they compete. They fight. You know, they stay aggressive and they they try to do their job. Kids who are not ball players, they get wide eyed, and then the floodgates open up. They implode. Their shoulders droop, or, or maybe even they don't. But at the same time, you can see it on their face that they're scared, they're nervous, and they curl up into a little ball like metaphorically I guess but or figuratively literally no none of those things they just stink they can't get people out but anyway you see that a lot and it weans itself out because those kids over time coaches can't trust them and they end up just not earning a spot sooner or later whether it's at you know the JV level or the varsity level or the college level coaches will they'll pick it up when they see these kids put in pressure situations and they see that man he can't he can't perform you know because Pressure makes diamonds, but pressure also causes most things to crumble, you know, just into in dust. So, so you know, the the whole does clutch thing, does clutch hitting exist? Um, I think it does at younger ages. I think when you have kids who are are really good ball players, you know, who have that ball playerism in them, I think those kids are clutch hitters because they're more focused than everyone else. But then again, the same argument could be, well, this kid just Maybe he's not hitting in the clutch. He just is always a better hitter than these kids who are not as good a hitter. But, you know, at the same time, good athletes do live for those challenges. You know, I remember this is my other yippee story that I wanted to share is that I was struggling in 2015. I had like a slump both my both of those years with Camden where, you know, like mid to late July, I just started to hit a bunch and 
Um, just had a rough like two weeks. And so I got kind of taken out of my, my eighth inning role and I was coming in the seventh to bail out one of our other relievers who'd load the bases with no one out. So we were pitching on the road in Long Island and they had a ton of, ton of people there. It was like a, a weekend game. So I come in with the bases loaded. I'm like, this is great. It's a, it's not a no pressure situation, but you're not expected to get out of it unscathed. But if you can, it's awesome. So on one hand, you've like just this challenge. Like, can I, can I weasel my way out of a bases loaded jam, help my buddy, you know, keep these runs off his ERA, all that stuff. And it's pretty rare if you can get out of a bases loaded jam, you know, the run expectancy of a bases loaded, no out situation is like 2.3 runs, I think. And, um, the runner on third with no one out is going to score 86% of the time. So, you know, almost nine out of 10 times when you come in with the bases loaded, no one out, at least one run is going to score. That runner on third is going to score. So in this particular situation, I think I struck out the first guy. I think I got a pop-up. So I had two outs and the bases loaded. No one had scored yet. So I was I was there. Like, all I had to do was get one more out. It could be a fly ball. It could be a ground ball. It could be whatever. Um Obviously, it's tough to keep those runs from scoring early because bases load no one out. A ground ball is going to score at least one. You know, sack fly is going to score one. Basically, they put the ball in play at all. A run a run's going to come home unless you're lucky and get a comeback or a ball to third or whatever. So, you know, you, you can't control a lot of that stuff. And that's probably, that's, that's well, not probably, that's definitely one of the reasons it's just so hard to weasel out of situations like that. You can't control really when hitters hit the ball. Um, and if they do hit it, you can't control really where it goes at all. So, so I'd gotten the, the pop up and punch out that I needed. And so there I was one out away from getting out of it. And we decided that the first pitch change up to the next guy who was kind of an ambusher was the right pitch to, to throw. And I had been having issues with my, my off speed stuff for the last couple of years. Um, I mean, it was something that, that was a weakness for me, my whole pro career and, one of the things when I'm working with kids in lessons is when I'm teaching them a change up or a curveball, I can always tell when they're overthinking the pitch. Because what happens when you overthink a pitch is that you tense up and this little almost imperceptible amount of electricity like flows through your arm and it takes away your fluidity. It makes your arm a little bit tense. I see it all the time with kids learning change ups. They think about their changeup, they try to slow it down, and they just tense up just a little bit, just enough to where they can't get on top of it and they can't push it down, they can't force it down the zone. So I watch kids, like, they have every tool. They know how to execute their changeups or they know how to execute their curveball or their slider, but they'll hang pitch after pitch after pitch after pitch while we're playing catch or throwing a bullpen simply because I can tell they're in their head. As soon as they take a deep breath, they relax and they calm down. And it's not like they're uncalm. It's not like they're like freaking out. They're just like not 100% calm. They're thinking about the pitch. They're trying to make it do something. And in that trying, that's the thought that gets stuck between their intention and their action. And that's what screws up the changeup and they, they leave it up. And I know this because I've done it. And that's one of those things that's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a privileged sensation that if you <clears throat> haven't pitched at a high level, you're not going to know, like, that's what that is. It's, it's not a mechanical thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a mental thing, and it screws you up. So I felt that over the years. And so in this moment, the base is loaded, two outs. I see my way out of this, you know, I see the light at the end of the tunnel. 
I get ready to throw my first pitch changeup, and I tense up. And I throw the changeup, six feet over my catcher's head, goes clean to the backstop. He doesn't even get a glove on it. Run scores. Runners move up. And I was just absolutely livid at myself. I was so pissed because I knew what I did. I just got the yips. I like I just got the I gave myself the yips because I was nervous. I really wanted to throw this chain up for a strike, and I again put my desire and my nerves about throwing a first pitch changeup into that changeup, and I screwed it up and it went to the backstop. I threw it fourteen feet off the ground. It was ridiculous. It was like the worst changeup of my career. But the and the the thing that was different about this situation was. I was so focused on getting that out of that inning, and I was so pissed that I did that, that I couldn't calm myself down. It was one of the only times in my in my career that I completely lost my composure. Now you wouldn't have seen it from the stands, like you would, like you didn't see me like kick dirt or like huff and puff or anything. But in my head, I was so pissed that I couldn't focus on make, making the next pitch. And at that point, like if you're paying attention, a run scored, and now it was second and third with two outs. So now that yippy wild pitch plus a blooper now cashes all three runs so i was super close to getting out of the inning with no run scored and now i was just one pitch away from letting all three runs cash because i got the yips on one pitch and then mentally took myself out of it so i uh i ended up falling behind two and oh and then i just coughed up a fastball down the middle and the guy just flied out and i got out of it but as I was walking off the mound, I was still I was still just absolutely fuming. Like there was there could have been like smoke coming out of my ears. I was just so angry. But I was at that moment I was like, man, you like you shouldn't you couldn't do this to yourself. You uh you you took yourself out of that inning, and all three of those runs could have scored just because you were so pissed and you completely lost focus on what you're doing. It was the only time that I can remember that I completely and utterly lost my composure, lost focus on what I was doing. And could have just paid dearly for it. I mean, again, I was just a blooper ground ball in a hole away from going from completely saving that inning to completely ruining it. And uh, and it was because of the yips. You know, I, I, I let my brain get in between my body and the, the action and the, you know, the intention that I that I had chosen. So it's it's something that's underappreciated. You know, I, I think people don't realize they they think pitchers are pitching machines sometimes. They think that, you know, you practice it in a game. And this doesn't go just for pitching. This goes for everything. I mean, golf is probably one of the headiest sports. I'm not a golfer. I don't golf, but I can absolutely empathize with the way that they're out there considering their shot. There's so much time, you know, and that's really where these things happen. When you have things like kicking in football, you have golf, you have pitching in baseball, you have so much time on the mound or you know on the course you know staring at the uh at the I don't know what you call them the uh the holder I don't know enough about football to uh to to know what they call the guy that's putting the ball down but that's embarrassing um but it's the downtime it's the downtime in between where you start thinking like oh man I should definitely not shank this and and miss wide right on this kick yeah I should definitely not you know hook this golf ball into the into the woods man, I hope I don't throw this first pitch change up, you know, in the dirt and it goes to the backstop. And then when you start thinking those things, that's exactly what happens. Um, you know, as such with me throwing that ball, just like so high above my catcher's head, it was like, it was embarrassing. And, uh, so, you know, the yips is, it's graded 
it can be as tiny as just like this little sensation that flows down your arm just enough to where you don't throw it quite as well as you could. Or it can be all the way up to that full-blown incident where I feel the ground ball and basically just convulse and just huck it into the uh, into the stands. So, And it's one of those things where it's just it's tragic when you see it going on. You know, I don't know if you remember Daniel Bard. He was a rally. You know, I, I watched the game at Fenway the first time at Fenway um, the other night on Saturday night, and the Red Sox won 4-1. to It was just a, an amazing experience. The Fenway Park is incredible. It's incredibly clean. I remarked to pretty much everyone who would listen that I, you couldn't tell that it was as old as it is because it's really well maintained. Like I was looking at all the cracks and like the junctions between beams, and um, it looked. I mean, all the concrete was really clean. the The paint was really fresh. It wasn't like that eighteen layers of caked on gross old paint. Um, it was just a really immaculate ball park. I was really impressed with Fenway, and just the atmosphere in general it was kind of a cozy, cozy ballpark. And but I digress. But um, so Daniel Bard was, you know, like a outstanding reliever for the Red Sox in 2009, 10, 11. And in 2011, he had 73 innings pitched at the pen, 24 walks, 74 strikeouts. In 2012, he had 92 innings total between AAA and the majors, 72 walks. So seven walks per nine innings, which is more than double what's acceptable in the big leagues. And then this year, I just looked him up. 2017 he's pitched nine innings 27 walks so it was widely known that after like 2012 he got the yips pretty much and couldn't throw a strike anymore he was balanced out of the big leagues after having just a lot of success at the major league level and I'm not sure what the problem was with him um, but all that really matters is the output you know I don't know how it came on but he can't throw a strike and he keeps getting chances because he was an all-star I think and I mean he was an excellent pitcher for this couple years you know throws in the upper 90s North Carolina Tar Heel, and, uh, but he just, it's gone. So, and you saw it with Mark Wollers, you saw it with Chuck Knobloch, you know, I saw this ESPN 30 for 30 about it, where this catcher, I can't remember his name, he uh, had his ankles taped up, and because he couldn't rock towards the pitcher like he normally could to throw back to him, because his ankles were, were taped so tight, that uh, he just started, like, developing this hitch in his throw, and it became, like, full-blown yips, where he just, like, couldn't throw it back to the pitcher. And it just was debilitating. So, I mean, these things, they go on, and it's something where you start thinking about it, and it spirals out of control. Um, and as we were walking around downtown Boston, I remarked that for, like, a year and a half, maybe two years, I couldn't pee in public. You know, it's like, wait, why all of a sudden do I get nervous in a public bathroom and I can't, like, my bladder tightens up and I can't pee? And, you know, like, I was fine for the first 24 years of my life, and then for two years... I like, couldn't pee in public. It was embarrassing. And every time I'd walk into a bathroom, I would be immediately aware, like, oh, God, what if I can't pee this time? And then I'd feel myself, like, just tense up my whole body almost. And then it was just, like, not going to happen. And then for no reason, it just went away again. So now like, I, I could walk out in public right now and just, like, pee my pants, you know, through my jeans. It'd be no problem at all in front of, you know, crowds of people. But for whatever reason, for two years, I went from never thinking about my urination habits to being completely unable to pee in a public bathroom. And you just like wonder like, how did we get to this point? How, like, how am I here? This was never an issue. Now it's a big issue and I can feel it because I think about it and I think that it's an issue. It's even more of an issue. You know, again, the self-fulfilling prophecy, um, you know, and just in sports, it's just, there's tons of stuff like that. And I've talked about, you know, in episode 13, how meditation, 
helped change my life as a pitcher and as a, as a person in general. Um, just helping to rid yourself of stress and anxiety and keeping me disconnected from all the, the negative thoughts and doubts and anxiety. But, you know, it, those things can just run your life in a hurry if you let them and if you get off track and, and don't keep them in check. And it's one of those things where I think it's widely known that, especially with baseball pitchers, that you have to be a certain amount of, like, stupid to pitch well that these guys that just go up there and they just huck the ball in there. And that's kind of like what you need. It's like a, like these big country boys come in and just like, don't think a thing. They don't overthink it. And you, and you hear these stories about guys who are, you know, Harvard grads, super smart players, super smart pitchers. And they end up overthinking every detail to where they paralyze themselves. So it's like the best players seem to have this combination of the two where they can think, but then they can disconnect and just do their job without cluttering it with with thoughts and you know in my in my major I was a philosophy major I graduated with a double in uh in philosophy and psychology we read a ton of Asian martial arts um literature and you know the book the Hagakure the book of five rings um the art of war the uh the way of Chuang Tzu's little poem book that I love and this book, The Unfettered Mind, all these these books were like manuals for, for samurai. And so many of them talked about not only meditation, but just keeping an unfettered, a clear mind where you had to disconnect yourself from consequences. And the consequence for a samurai, obviously, was death. You had to disconnect yourself from that. Otherwise, if you thought for one second, oh, God, he's going to, if I don't react, he's going to cut me in half, which was absolutely what would happen, then that was absolutely what would happen it would again it would become like a self-fulfilling prophecy and basically all these books had little bits of different advice but they all had the same advice the same overarching advice which was that you can't stop on these thoughts you have to meditate you have to see your own death see yourself hacked apart so that when you're in battle you're no longer worried about your own death because you've you've lived it already you've seen it happen you know it's going to happen one day and so you're not obsessed with stopping on it. You're not obsessed with the fear. And the fear is not going to slow down your sword, basically. So, you know, there's a lot of merit in there. If you're not mentally strong, you know, being in battle and combating opponents on, you know, in all directions is going gonna, is gonna to be insurmountable. And so, obviously, like, the implications to, to modern-day sports are, are vast and especially sports where, again, where there's more downtime. So, you know, when, when you're constantly going, you know, when, you know, the play starts in football or you're running down the soccer field, there's, there's less time. There's a lot more instinctual action. But, again, when you're in baseball or, you know, between shots and tennis or kicking or, or putting or, or driving the ball, it's, uh, there's just so much more time for you to think and overthink and then screw up what should otherwise be a nice fluid action. You know, and all this stuff gets lost in translation. So when a high-level pitcher throws a bullpen, he can, like, pretty much throw the ball where he wants on command. You know, when I would throw bullpens, I could just throw the ball into a Dixie cup over and over and over. But then when I go out on the mound in a game, my command goes down significantly. And, A, that's because you're competing and you're throwing a little bit of a, a higher tick. But, you know, there's other things just, like, get in the way. Your, your, your knowledge that there's consequences, your knowledge that you have to do things that, you can't miss in certain spots and you know the best players they just tend to separate themselves better from that and they just tap into more of their natural 
fluidability um, when they're out there in the game. And it's easy to be, you know, great in practice. Um, and that's, that's one thing, but it's, it's another to be great in games and to translate as much of that as you can. And that's one, one of the things, one of the trends in baseball right now is so many kids are throwing weighted balls and weighted balls aren't necessarily evil thing in themselves. They're just a tool, but there's lots, there's more and more pitchers taking like gap years off where they're like, Oh, I don't throw hard enough. So I'm just going to like train all the time. I'm just going to train until I throw 96 miles. I'm just going to train and they're just throwing balls into nets or into catchers and in practice. And they never get out there where it matters and they never put themselves in these situations with consequences where that's where they have to learn to control their emotions, their mentality, and learn to, to pitch under those circumstances because they're completely different. I mean, just what you do in practice has very little transfer over to what you do in game. I shouldn't say, say shouldn't say very little, but the person that you are in a bullpen is completely different than the person that you are in a game. Um, so a lot of this stuff is just misguided when people think they can just practice baseball for a whole year without actually playing any baseball and that they'll just go out there and just, you know, what they are doing in the in the tunnel when no one's watching is going to be the same as what they do in a game. It's just couldn't be farther from the truth. You know, but it all comes back to can you act with complete fluidity and can you not let your brain stop on negative consequences and, and, and clutter your actions with, you know, useless thoughts. And one of the things that I talk to my pitchers about is that, hey, what's your mental checklist? So you're, you, you know, you get the ball back, you're not on the mound, you're on the infield grass. What's your checklist? Okay, well, what's the score? Uh, what inning are we in? How many runners on base? What base do I back up on a certain hit? Which side of the field do I have to cover on a bunt? Um, where am I throwing the ball if I get a comebacker? You know, who's on first? You know, who's on second? Like, what are the runners? What have they done today? That's like your checklist of, of larger game situational kind of things. And then you step on the mound, and now you're thinking about the hitter. So, okay, who's coming in the box? Who's on deck? Again, what's the situation? How many outs do I have? So, you know, obviously, like, if they have a base open, so a runner on second or a runner on third or second and third, you have first base open, it changes the way you might attack this hitter because you could walk him potentially, um, intentionally or unintentionally, and it doesn't force in a run. You know, maybe it just puts the double play in order. But, you know, that's like the pre, uh, you know, the pre-mound checklist. Then there's the mound checklist. Again, like more hitter-specific stuff I just talked about. And then you get on the mound, you step on the rubber, you get your sign, and now you're focused on just one thing, which is let's pick the pitch that I've thought about. So now this big fat righty's stepping into the box, and he's got a slow bat and a hole in his swing, and he's 0 for 2 with, you know, two pop-ups. So I'm going to choose fastball low and away first pitch and then I think I'm probably going in if I get ahead and if I don't I'm probably going to go back to that same spot whatever so but so now you've chosen you have your checklist of things you're going to do you know your your custodial game duties you know covering first backing up where you're going to throw the ball what the situation is all that overarching game stuff and then what you're going to do to this hitter you know what do you have to do to hold your runners all that stuff and then when it's finally down to pick your pitch, all that other stuff goes away because you've already considered it. You already know what you're going to do. And now when you've chosen low and away fastball, the only thing you're left to do is 
execute that pitch. And the best pitchers, when it comes down to, okay, I've chosen my fastball on away. Here I am in the set position. There's, there can't be anything between you and executing that pitch. And when that's the case, you give yourself the best chance to succeed. But when there's, oh, man, I hope he doesn't hit this into the gap, or if you visualize him hitting the ball in the gap, or you have any nervousness about the pitch you're going to throw, or you're worried about the score, or you're worried about the scout, you have this radar gun pointed at you, any of those things get in the way at that last crucial moment between you executing your pitch or not, you're not going to execute your pitch. And that's what takes a lot of mental focus, and that's what takes a lot of practice blocking that stuff up or that stuff out. Because ultimately, it's just like that sort of proverb, you know, a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. You know, a complete game, if you say, oh, yeah, hey, guess what? If you don't throw, you know, your, your ERA is really high, so I need to throw seven shutout innings to get my ERA lower so I don't hopefully get released after tonight's game. You start thinking that way, you're going to have tons of negative consequences and doubt flowing through your mind. But also, that's just an almost insurmountable task to think that you can throw against 28 hitters and, you know, give up only six or seven hits, maybe a walk or two, and give up no runs in seven innings. It's a really big task to ask of yourself. But if you can distill it into okay, I just need three outs at a time, not seven innings. I just need one inning at a time. And then you just have one batter at a time, and then you continue to distill that down to one pitch at a time. And now it's pretty manageable. So if you're not cluttering yourself up with all these other thoughts, you can think about, okay, all I have to do is choose this one pitch to the best of my ability, and then can I execute it? If you can, all right, great. I, I can make one pitch, right? That's manageable. I can make one good pitch. I can focus hard on this one pitch and if I do that boom there it is now the task hasn't changed now I just have to make this one good pitch so you focus up you choose your target you go through your checklist pick your pitch all that stuff come set and now it's just make this one pitch and that's what good pitchers do they control the game by distilling it into this one pitch doesn't matter what happened before it doesn't matter what happens after it it's always just this one pitch, and nothing gets between them, their intention and the action of executing that pitch. So, you know, it's interesting thinking about all these things like, does clutch hitting exist? Does clutch pitching exist? Do hitters and pitchers change depending on the situation and the, the stakes involved, you know, the World Series versus the regular season? And, and sure, like, players, you know, my friends have told me, but, you know, when they make their major league debut, how they're just hard as beating out of their chest – um, but at the same time, they acclimate quickly. Otherwise, they wouldn't have made it that level in the first place. And at lower levels, you know, it's more pronounced. But ultimately, it's, you know, people, I think, underestimate the role of of the mentality in, in, in any sport, not just not just baseball, but how focused you have to be and how you have to eliminate all those extraneous thoughts and, and consequences and, and just BS and keep it out of your head because as soon as you let it get through you, it puts just that little bit of tension through your arms or your legs and now you're not fluid and now you can't execute in the same way that you otherwise would so you know and that's just one of those interesting things where you go to a sabermetrics conference and you're talking about tangibles you know x's and o's and ones and zeros and and math and statistics but then you know getting sidetracked and talking about very intangible things like the yips and and mentality and focus and how do you measure those things you know how do you measure the fact that one player, when he's put in a 
in a dire situation, he's going to give you 100% of his best. And another player is going to curl up a little bit inside. He's going to kind of he's going to flee more than he's going to fight and you're going to get 70% out of him. You know, there are those players and I see him on the daily basis, but uh it's it's just one of those fascinating things that there's so many even though we can measure more things than we ever could, there's still so many intangibles that you know you can recognize when you've been through them yourself and you can recognize, I mean, parents recognize them. They bring it up to me all the time where they say, you know, he's, he, he's done well with his pitching mechanics and he looks really good out there. But as soon as he gets a couple runners on, he gets nervous and he starts walking people, you know, that's, I, I get that conversation two, three times a month and we talk about it and we talk about the, you know, breaking the game down into single pitches and the little bite size outcomes. And, it's just a learned skill. The more they get in those situations and they realize that they can get through it or anything else. And even then, you get to the top, you can still <laughs> pick up a ground ball 35 feet from first base and poop your pants in front of a whole ballpark full of people and throw, throw it into stands and hit some woman with her beer cup. You know, that still happens. And this is one of the, just the, the fascinating things about sports. So this was the yips. And uh, we'll see you back here pretty soon on Dear Baseball Guides.